This morning's reading comes from Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. It can be found on page 843 of your Pew Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered, them, answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given, given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Del. Dalmanutha, Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is God's word. A few weeks ago, I preached the feeding of the 5,000 and when I saw that I had the message on the feeding of the 4,000, I was like, oh no, deja vu. <clears throat> what am I going to say? But as I looked at this passage and saw how it really pointed us to the backdrop of the wilderness experience of the Israelites, I began to see more and more. And this message has meant to me more than most messages that I've preached they were on the edge of the promised land. God's promises and their hopes were on the verge of being fulfilled. They'd been through harrowing times, slavery in Egypt, a dangerous escape, a lengthy trek through a barren wilderness. Now, all that they longed for was there for the taking. All they had to do was trust the God who brought them through all of these. But they didn't. And not one man set a foot in the promised land. 
except for two who did trust God. Deuteronomy 1 records their failure to trust God and the reason for it. Verses 26 and 27. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You murmured in your tents and said, Behold, the Lord hated us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. See, fear gripped them. It consumed them. And so instead of trusting God, they defamed him. They didn't consider all that God had done for them. And Moses brings this out in verses 29 to 31. Don't be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you. He himself will fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you want until even now this place. Moses' answer to their fear was remember what God has done. And because they didn't, they languished in the wilderness. Moses' advice is the same as that God gives us today. Remember what God has done. Let's pray. Our Father, bring us through this passage this morning. May we, we live it. May your Spirit drive home its truths so that we will not be people who miss what you have to offer, but we will enter the promised land of your glory and your gifts. In Christ we pray, amen. See, Mark wants us to recall the wilderness experience. See, in Mark 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, his emphasis was different. He's pointing us to Psalm 23 by highlighting the fact that the crowd was like sheep without a shepherd and highlights the lush green grass that they all sit on, reminding us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. In our passage, he points to the Israelites' wilderness experience by highlighting the place being desolate and their lack of food. Just like the Israelites were in a desolate wilderness lacking food until God brought them bread from heaven. Just like Jesus now brings them bread. So this backdrop that Mark sets prepares us for the responses of the Pharisees and the disciples who are both forgetting God's miracle, miraculous provision just like the Israelites had. Passage opens in those days when, again, there was a great crowd, great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. So just like the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, there's a massive crowd in need of food. Dis disciples view the situation as hopeless. There's only a ridiculously paltry amount of food and fish available. 
Jesus blesses the bread, the disciples take it, distribute it, everyone eats to their full, and there's an abundance of leftovers. The parallels between these two miracles can lead us to see, think that the feeding of the 4,000 is simply a different version of the feeding of the 5,000 and not a separate event. However, there are important details that do vary. And later in our passage, Jesus himself distinguishes these events as two different miracles. So Mark has at least three reasons for recording the two miracles in parallel, yet showing how they're distinct. First, this parallel shows the breadth of Jesus' compassion. We read in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Earlier, Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that showed his care for their spiritual lives. Here, he shows concern for their physical lives. They hadn't eaten for three days. His miracles throughout the gospel minister first to the body, but always are teaching a greater spiritual truth about what he brings. Jesus fed them bread in order to show that he is the bread of life. So second, this parallel highlights the inclusion of the Gentiles. In chapter 7, Jesus' ministry turns when the Syrophoenician woman convinces Jesus to, to cast out the demon from his daughter, her daughter even though they were Gentiles. That's followed up by another Gentile miracle as Jesus heals the blind man in, uh, in a Gentile region, Decapolis. And this miracle takes place in the same Gentile region. It's predominantly Gentile. The first miracle is to the Jews, the second to the Gentiles. Do you ever realize that Jesus is all about diversity, equity, and inclusion? <laughs> not, not as our culture deems it, but as God does. Jesus broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women. He broke through every racial barrier and made the many distinct one. The earliest Christians lived that out, and that's what changed the values of our world. So third, this shows us that we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done over and over again. See, the disciples are brought through a deja vu experience because they didn't get it the first time. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he calms the storm, and it says they, they were utterly astonished that he calmed the storms because they had not understood about the loaves. They had forgotten how, what Jesus could do already because their hearts were hardened. They weren't getting it. 
So how, how does God get through to us when we're so dense? By repeating it over and over again. You know, in the movie Groundhog Day, the character played by Bill Murray, he's arrogant, self-centered, cynical weatherman. And he becomes trapped in a time loop, forcing him to relive February 2nd over and over again. So he's sent to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania to cover the Groundhog Day festivities. He despises the assignment. He can't wait to get out of town, but a blizzard forces him to stay. When he wakes up the next morning, he discovers he's reliving the same day. And this happens day after day. He becomes so desolate, he tries to take his life, but he wakes up the next morning to the alarm playing the same song. Once he accepts his fate, he, he begins to use his understanding of the people and what, what takes place to manipulate them for selfish purposes. Fits his character perfectly. But he changes a little bit and realizes he could use it for self-improvement. So he learns the piano, he learns other languages, but eventually his heart grows for the townspeople and he uses his knowledge of what's happening to help them. He changes into a thoughtful, kind-hearted philanthropist. See, there's tremendous value in Jesus's Groundhog Day's experiences for us. If we don't get it, he is so gracious, so patient, he'll bring us through it again. I, I believe Bill Murray in the movies believes that he was in that time loop for 10 years. So hopefully we don't have to go through those time loops that often, but if we do, God will do it for us. Unfortunately, the Pharisees and disciples get a Groundhog Day experience with the feeding of the 4,000, but they still don't get it. Verses 11 and 12. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why aren't the Pharisees getting it? Jesus performs so many miracles that believers win an argument when they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They got it. You can't expect any more signs from the Messiah than, than he's given. There's enough signs. And yet the Pharisees persist in their unbelief because they were closed-minded and predisposed against Jesus. They came with an argumentative spirit in order to test him. And they've had a test that he could never pass. There weren't enough miracles. They'd already made up their minds. Earlier on two occasions, scribes had been sent from Jerusalem to test Jesus. They witnessed all his signs and then they condemned him saying, they're from the demons. They'd already declared 
judgment, and there was no amount of signs that would change their mind. Therefore, no sign will be given to this generation. Their attitude is a window into the unbelief of today. A similar negative attitude towards Christ is growing in the West. Many are already predisposed against him. They prejudged him. Pronouncing a verdict without ever studying his word or examining the historical evidence that support his claims. They champion values of love, inclusion, diversity, and justice without recognizing that he is the source of those. Instead, they react against the teachings that conflict with our high view of ourselves when he says the brokenness of the world is caused by our brokenness and our sin. And he challenges our self-deification when he calls us to follow God's commands rather than the desires of our fallen hearts. He challenges us when he calls us, our, our egocentrality, when he calls us to glorify God rather than make life about ourselves. And when he offers only one way to God, the way of grace, rather than the way of other religions and of our good works. And so, they don't like his teaching. So they've made judgment on him. You know, Jesus' response to this isn't anger. He's not offended. He's not shattered. It says he sighed deeply. He feels deeply for those who don't believe in him. Do we feel the same? So Jesus and his disciples get into a boat. They travel to the other side of the lake. And we read in verses 14 to 16. Now when they'd forgotten to, to bring bread, they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. There are few lessons that are more important than this one. Watch out! That's what we shout when we're pointing out danger to someone. You're about to walk across the street without looking. Someone sees a car heading toward you. Watch out! This is dangerous. Beware. Beware of the coyotes in Natick and probably your town too. <laughs> Beware of the falling rocks. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and, the Her and Herod. It's dangerous. Leaven, dangerous? It only takes a little bit to leaven an entire lump of dough to make it rise because it works its way through that entire lump, changing its nature. Beware of the beliefs and behaviors that can get a foothold in our lives and send us down the wrong path. 
the beliefs and behaviors that can gain a foothold in a church and corrupt that church. It only takes a little, but it can work its way through us. It can work its way through the church. Beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. They're on polar opposite ends of life spectrum. The Pharisees were a religious sect intent on keeping the minutia of the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. They were all about religion. They strained at a gnat while swallowing a camel. They tithed mint and dill, but they neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Their path to fulfillment was self-righteousness. Herod, Herod was a hedonist. He was a law unto themselves, breaking the law even though confronted, as we saw when John the Baptist confronted him. Instead of responding, you do away with the one who is pointing out your failures. He sought fulfillment through pleasure and power through unrighteousness. Beware of legalism and worldliness. The true path of fulfillment is through the bread of life himself. The disciples completely missed this lesson. Crucial lesson. Because they were thinking about their lack of bread. I mean, after all, they only had one loaf with them. How could they ever get enough bread to survive? The one who fed 5,000 with five loaves and 4,000 with seven loaves was sitting next to them, and they're wondering how could they ever get enough bread. How often do we fail to realize Jesus is sitting next to us? How... How many spiritual lessons do we miss because we're fixated on our physical and emotional needs instead of giving them to Jesus? So Jesus tries to shake them out of their spiritual stupor by asking them six questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Reflect on what's going on inside of you. What's the inner dynamic that has you more concerned about your stomachs than my lesson? So it's a question we need to ask ourselves regularly. What's going on inside of us that keeps us from getting the lessons the Lord is trying to teach us? Do you not yet perceive or understand why can't you connect the dots between what I've done and what that means in your lives? You disciples just distributed bread to, that I created to over 4,000 people, yet you're still concerned about getting bread. Can't connect the dots. How about us? And we can learn a lot of theology we can quote Bible verses. We can listen to the best preachers and be inspired by their sermons or the best books. We can even experience God's working in our lives without ever integrating those truths into our lives. 
Do we understand? Are your hearts hardened? Why are Christ's truths bouncing off their hearts? It's a question I often ask myself. Why isn't what I know in my mind impacting my life the way it should? I'm still searching for some answers, but I know it begins with keeping Christ in the forefront of my mind. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not understand? How blind and deaf can you be? God's working in each of our lives all the time. But we can go through our days completely unaware of him. In my college days, my idol was a basketball player, Oscar Robertson. I actually had an autographed picture of him above my bed. So every morning when I woke up, I'd see Oscar Robertson. Every night when I went to bed, I'd see Oscar Robertson. So one time I was at a Celtic game. They actually used to play some in Hartford. And a friend and I were leaving the game. And this gentleman about my height walks in, in front of me, gets on the escalator, and then two kids grade school kids kind of rush between us and him. And they say, do you have a pen? Can we get his autograph? And I'm thinking like, oh, they recognize me. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no, they were interested in the autograph of that gentleman who had just walked in front of me. And so I said, he must be famous. And I look around and guess who it is? Oscar Robertson. Why did I miss him? Because I wasn't looking for him. He had retired years before. He was a game commentator, and I hadn't realized he would be there. Never looked for him. But he was there. Having eyes do we not see, and ears do we not hear? He's there, and we're wondering, where are you, Lord? You know... There's hope for us because in the passage before ours, Jesus heals a blind man. In the passage after ours, he heals a deaf man. God's trying to tell us something. There's hope for us. If he heals them physically, he can heal us spiritually. Do you not remember how could they forget so many miracles? Actually, they hadn't. Jesus quizzed them, and they had all the right answers. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. And they must have been so excited, they, they got 100 on his quiz. Jesus wasn't so excited because he's saying you actually don't remember. I mean, they hadn't forgotten, but their memories of what Jesus was doing had been pushed to the back of their minds because they hadn't applied it to their lives. If we want to get it, 
understand. We need to take the truths we're learning and apply it to our lives. And we often do that when we're, we're studying the scripture and we say, this is the application I'm going to apply. This is the application for me. And then 10 minutes later, we forget about it. But what if we took that application throughout the day and remembered it? It could be life-changing. See, the Israelites didn't believe God could deliver them from the armies of the promised land, even though he had miraculously delivered them from the armies of the Egyptians. The disciples didn't trust Jesus to take care of their physical needs, despite the fact that he had just met the needs of 4,000. What are we not believing Jesus can do that he's already done. Can we trust him to provide for us? He's done it. Can we trust him to forgive us? He's done it. Can we trust him to fulfill us? He's provided for it. Can he trust us? Can we trust him to give us peace and joy that he promises through the Holy Spirit? What are we not believing Jesus can do that he's already done? When we struggle, let's remember he's done it before and he'll do it again if we trust him. Jesus' final question is found in verse 21. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And those words are a strong indictment against them. They should have gotten it by now. But there's also a ray of hope in the word yet. Now we say it to our children, have you not yet cleaned up your room? You're saying you haven't met our expectations, but there's still time. That yet says there's still time. The disciples hadn't yet understood, but their future understanding is still a possibility. And we, are, we know it became a reality. They eventually did get it after many Groundhog Day experiences. And the Holy Spirit changed the world as a result of it. There's hope for us, even if we haven't been getting it. So many Israelites never made it to the promised land because they didn't understand that the God who brought them out of Egypt, carried them through the wilderness, could be trusted. We can miss God's blessings for us, the fruit of the Spirit, if we don't remember, understand, and integrate the truths of the Lord who gave his life for us, he can be trusted in whatever we face. You know, Paul weaves the cross into our lives in verses 31 and 32 of Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And the cross cries out, God is for us. So who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Can we trust God with our future? That he cares for us. That he wants what's good for us. He wants the best for us. And we say yes, because we look at the cross. That he did not spare his son, but gave him for us. Regardless of what you've experienced or are experiencing, regardless of any disappointment you've had with God, regardless of any fears you face, remember the cross of Christ. Understand what it means and connect the dots from the cross to your life. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is so rich. Your word is so wonderful. Your word is so true. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to remember. Help us through your spirit to abide in the cross of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.